And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. One of the blessings and curses of the modern media environment is that there's a ton of stuff to read uh, and a lot of uh, work being done, some insightful, some just meant to incite. Uh, But one of the consistently smart commentators on American politics for several decades now is Matt Bai. His book, All the Truth is Out, traces the changes in our modern media environment that have made it so much more difficult uh, for public figures uh, to do their jobs and has changed the nature of our politics. He came to the Institute of Politics a couple of weeks ago to lead a panel, and while he was here, we sat down for a conversation. Matt Pye, welcome. Welcome here and also to the Institute of Politics. Thank you. Uh, This is a very strange occurrence. You're interviewing me. We've done it the other way around many times. I know. Well, I'm, you know, I'm returning to my roots, uh, my reportorial roots. Interesting thing about the podcast, because um, in some form or fashion, whether it was in journalism or in politics, you know, my career has been about storytelling. So, the podcast is just an idea. It's just a chance to hear other people's stories, and um, uh, and I'm I'm eager to hear yours. I want to talk about everything that's going on now. Yeah, and because I think it's have there, we're is there an much extraordinary going on? I epic. I haven't been paying attention, but uh, it's hard to pay attention because there's so much going on. It's like a three ring circus. You don't know whether to watch the elephants, the tigers, or the clowns, but. Uh, uh, There's more of one than the other two. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but tell me about about uh, growing up outside of Bridgeport, Connecticut, because I know that's where you started out. I did. I'm from Trumbull, Connecticut, which I always I was just talking to one of the students here who's from Greenwich, and I said that's about 20 minutes and two planets away. You know, it's uh, <laughs> the, the 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 lower edge of the, or the upper edge of the Gold Coast. It's not so Bridgeport's not so gold. It's a tough city, and and it is. It, as you know, it's formative where you grow up. Yes. Um, and so I think the significance for me, I mean, I had a relatively routine suburban uh, existence. What would you folks uh, do? My dad was a trial lawyer, a defense lawyer. Um, did a lot of medical malpractice, aeronautical disaster. Then just back-to-back trials. He died pretty young. Um, and How young? 61. And were you? how old were you? I was. Well, you're really going to get into it now, huh? You wanna, yeah. I was... Uh, 22, uh-huh. 23. No, I'm always um, interested because I lost my dad when he was when I when I was pretty young as well. So yeah, I, and I was about to go to graduate school for journalism, so he never saw that you know part of my career. I was actually speechwriting for the UN at that time, mm-hmm. you know, UNICEF. Um, but the thing about Bridgeport, particularly because we really lived five minutes from Bridgeport. Both my parents grew up there. My mother's family had a bakery. My dad practiced law there for thirty odd years. Um, is that you know. That was that was a without my even knowing it growing up. That was a very visceral and primary education in deindustrialization and and the economic changes that were going on. Something was very wrong, right? People went out to towns like mine because the neighborhoods had deteriorated, the businesses had closed, taxes were high, services were low, crime was rampant. Uh, you know, my I cannot remember a time as a child when you didn't when you weren't told to put the latches down. You know, this is when you had manual latches, put the latches down in the car driving through certain neighborhoods. So, you know, and you took the train, the Metro North runs 
from that area into New York City, and you would go through uh, Harlem and Upper Manhattan and, and the Bronx, and you'd see it. I was a Yankee fan. I'd go to the Bronx. And you'd see it all from a train, but you yes. knew you never got off. Yeah. You know, you didn't get off. You just – that was the – I grew up, you know, in the city in Stuyvesant Town. I used to take the Woodlawn train up to Yankees Yankees Stadium. But you're right. So for me as a reporter, I think, you know, particularly early in my career, that was a driving force of curiosity for me was I wanted to get off the train for whatever reason. I wanted to understand what was going on in the cities like Bridgeport and like the Bronx and New York. I wanted to, you know, I wanted to experience that world and also figure out why we couldn't seem to do anything about it. What what did your parents tell you about Bridgeport? I mean, what was the Bridgeport of their experience? Well, that's funny. You know, I think everybody whose parents went from the city to the suburbs had a certain amount of the same experience. It was they had very they had great nostalgia and very romanticized memories probably of how great a city it was. It was. It was the Park City. You know, it had it was the city of P. T. Barnum and, and it still has some beautiful architecture and so you know, they would talk, you know, my dad went downtown every day. And, and when I was a kid, I remember going downtown with my grandmother and they would always talk about what it used to be like, what it was, what used to be over there. You know, that the theater, the movie theater where the birds had built huge elaborate nests in the marquee because nothing ever occupied the space for the bulk of my childhood. You know, that was the great marquee theater and that's where they went and saw movies. So that, that really makes an impression on you. Know, you know, and I... Uh, understanding that America changed in some fundamental way. In my uh, old incarnation, uh, I did a few races in Detroit hmm. and I remember doing an ad where I interviewed people about the way Detroit was. And the way it was moving to hear these memories of getting dressed up and going downtown yeah. and going to the, the 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 shopping you know to shopping at some major store and going to this re- little restaurant and going to this theater and um and you know we were conducting these interviews in Detroit's by the way coming back the central city of mm. Detroit but you know there was a lot of nothing around where right. we were talking and so you could see them painting this picture in their mind's eye of the way it was. Well, and the darker side of that picture, right, because it's always inherent in this and you have to acknowledge it is a, is a racism, mm-hmm. a classism. Uh, you know, there was always an undercurrent of uh, it. It changed, meaning yes. the races changed, meaning the neighborhoods they grew up in were now all black and then all Latino and, and they were unsafe and, and, and the economy was terrible and somebody had to be to blame for that, right? So, so you know, I can be honest about it. That was an undercurrent of my, of my youth. I think my parents were of a generation that really resented that changeover. They had seen their neighborhoods deteriorate. And so one of the things for me, you know, as, as a young reporter going into you know, urban neighborhoods was, to, was, was the awakening of understanding that there were a bunch of sides to that story. You uh, you talked about deindustrialization. What happened to Bridgeport? Bridgeport made shoes, you know, leather items. Manufacturing. I mean, when my when my uh, uh, parents were young, you know, it was a, it was still a pretty uh, potent manufacturing town, which of course breeds all kinds of other industries. Um, and uh, and you know the Sikorsky. Sikorsky made helicopters on the edge of Bridgeport near Stratford and worked, you know, for a lot of the time my parents could remember worked triple shifts, you know, through the night making that stuff after the war. Um, So, uh, you know, everything just left Bridgeport and, and, um, you know, for all the reasons uh, that that we know, right, because – 
it cost too much to make stuff there, right? A lot of it went overseas because plants went to new, cheaper parts of the country and became more automated, right? Those those jobs went away uh, very, very quickly, actually. Uh, and then uh, when you have empty factories and joblessness, you, you also have the services have to leave, right? My family's bakery, my mother's family had a bakery. There's no one to come to the bakery anymore. The bakery goes away, right? Um, you know, they used to complain about the labor costs, the truckers, how they couldn't, you know, they couldn't keep going. It all just breaks down. And then what happens ultimately is as people flee to the suburbs, partly because of the economic issue, partly because of the racism and partly because of fear of crime and all of it, you know, all of it intermingled, um, there's no tax base anymore. And what happened to cities like Bridgeport is they start taxing people more for the services they need for the poor. And the more you tax, the harder it is to attract business and the harder the harder it is to redo your downtowns and get residents. And you, you get into this very – as you know, you get into this very not virtuous cycle. This is – I don't want to lose the thread of your narrative and, and we won't. But we should note that when Donald Trump said make America great again, in certain ways he was speaking to uh, that notion of the way it was and that it can be that way again. And he has, in the early going of his administration, really played to that notion that we're going to bring this manufacturing back, that we're going to penalize people who try and yeah. take these jobs away. It's, it, you know, it may be uh, wrong-headed from a policy or misleading from a policy standpoint, and I want to talk to you about this later about mm-hmm. technology rather than mm-hmm. trade being the, the the real threat to middle class jobs today. But it it indisputably has appealed to people who feel aggrieved by the loss. Well, it has a strong emotional appeal. I mean, one of the things that's interesting about it, and you remind me of the inaugural address where he talked about the American carnage, right? And he was largely talking about here in Chicago, right? He, he keeps talking about what's happening in Chicago. Those people didn't vote for him. He didn't win any urban votes. He did very poorly in, in across the board in urban areas. So there, the, the nostalgia he plays to is nostalgia of people really like my parents who, who remember left. vibrant cities but don't live there. Yeah, um, I have to say a word for uh, my city, by the way, because uh, Chicago is such a great city that Donald Trump very recently built a large apartment uh, condo building here <laughs> that is uh, adorned with very large letters uh, of his name. And As apparently had enough builds. confidence in the community uh, to uh, to build here, and has been, and that building's been here for some years. And in all those years that his name and his project has been here, I haven't heard him raise his voice about community concerns until very recently. So you know, welcome to the fight, Mr. Trump. I, I find it a strange uh, thing for him. I mean, well, this is the story of him and his presidency, but it's an odd direction uh, impulse to indulge because there's very little he can actually do about it. It's not something that the public is up screaming about. It's not something the federal government's really involved in. So, uh, I think the key word is impulse. Yeah, I think so. Uh, as I understand it, as has been reported, he was watching uh, Fox and uh, O'Reilly was doing a piece on this violence in Chicago. That included, by the way, right. a uh, comment by the mayor chastising the president for focusing on the size of the crowd at the inauguration. And 20 minutes later, a tweet came out. And we'll get to that about what the impact of uh, policymaking by tweet and impulse <laughs> means uh, for governance. But uh, just returning to to your story, uh, what made you decide that journalism was what you wanted to do? I mean, uh, this sounds 
self-effacing, and I don't think it is. But unlike you, David, I actually can't do anything else. I, this is this is what I do. I I, I write. I love history. But at I love some politics. point, you had to. You didn't just. You weren't born saying to myself, "Well, I, I don't dance. I can't. I can't. Uh, I can't." <laughs> Do this, and I can, yeah, I can't dance. Uh, I can't sing. I don't weld very you well. You may not I say that to yourself, but in some ways, it is. When did you realize that this that that you wanted to write and you wanted? Well, to Well, I always wanted to write. I don't remember a time where I wasn't writing. I was in trouble in school for writing, and if I weren't writing journalism, I you know, in, in some other life, I'd write novels. I'm now writing screenplays. I'm, work, I'm working on a bunch of projects in Hollywood. I, I just write. I love to learn new kinds of writing. That's that's. And when did that start? Me. I mean, as early as I can remember, grade school. You know, I I I I can remember. You know, I I literally remember. I don't think I've ever talked about this, but I remember being called to the principal's office in uh, grade school because I had written. I had been reading sports biographies, and I had written a mock biography of of sports heroes that did not exist. And to this day, I'm not sure why I was called, and I'm sure I got all the dates wrong. I don't know if they thought I was like pretending something was true that wasn't or if they just wanted to understand where I'd gotten it from but I was always writing in 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 my spare time uh, and I loved history and I love politics I got very interested in Watergate very young you know I was growing up in the late 70s early 80s so it was very fresh in the public mind I read books about the Watergate figures for a while I some of us be... lived through it in real time yeah well I didn't <laughs> although you know really my early one of my very earliest memories and certainly my earliest political memories of Nixon resigning so I was fascinated by that. I think like a lot of people in my generation, you know, because this was – I graduated high school in 1986. I didn't know that I could make money as a writer or journalist and that was kind of a big thing then. You know, that was the kind of the yes. generation, the Reagan era. Yeah. My dad was a lawyer. I think he would have liked for me to be a lawyer. I come from a family of lawyers really and uh, even my grandmother was a lawyer. She's one of the first women lawyers on my mother's side. So, um, uh, you know, although, uh, you know, my father's side – they hadn't gone to college or but but you know for me that was that would have been a natural course so it was more a question of how was i going to take that writing ability what was i going to do with it we uh we had uh sat down with carl bernstein and we, we probably we haven't aired the interview yet but we will uh shortly uh and i i, I conveyed to him what he knew which is i was a young journalist uh of that generation that was inspired by Woodward and Bernstein, who, through their dogged investigative journalism, in many ways saved our democracy, saved the republic. It spoke to the power of I mean, what journalism can be. It's really interesting because I I met Bob Woodward in college for the first time in college. I'm sure he does not remember this, and uh, and and said a very similar thing to him that it had been inspiring, and he had actually no use for me, but but. Uh, but as I've wrestled with this, and in my book, you know, and all the truth is out, I wrestle with this. Yes. Uh, that the, the, the legacy of Watergate for me is complicated. I've come to see it as much more complicated than I did then as a kid. I think yes. It did inspire a lot of us. It certainly inspired me years after as a kid, and and uh, and yeah. and, it, and it created this great model for journalism. Uh, but it also created this perverse incentive of yes. journalists who could get rich and famous and be celebrities by taking people down. And the idea that that if you were the ultimate journalist. You were exposing people for well, frauds also, that they were. Well, you know, I think there's a difference between skepticism and cynicism, and reporters should always be skeptical. Right. But it's it created a baseline assumption that people in politics were corrupt, that government was, uh, you know, subject That's to right. that, and uh, that you could make your name as a reporter by uncovering all of that. And Unless you have good editors and good habits as a reporter, you end up, in a sense, inflating things and conflating things 
And uh, rather than doing uh, solid reporting, you end up skipping, uh, cutting corners to try and expose scandals that don't exist or uh, or inflating, as you wrote in your book. And we'll talk about it uh, relative to Gary Hart, things that ultimately, uh, uh, first of all, weren't true in the way they were presented, but also uh, weren't germane in many right. ways. I think, I think the, way I, the, the, the way I put it in the book was it, we, our, the ethos of the business became, after that really became, you know, we know you're a fraud, we just have to figure out how. Right. right? And that's, that's that what is, that's And that is, that is a pernicious thing uh, because, um, you know, I think the greatest threat we face today is just lack you know, just this diminishing lack of confidence in any institutions, the media being chief among them, but mm-hmm. uh, this notion that nothing's on the level, that everything's rigged in the words of our president. Uh, and that's very unhealthy for democracies. And the Internet uh, only amplifies all of that. So it's a big concern. But when you started, you were still, it, 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 we weren't quite there yet. You, you know, we weren't, so, no. Yeah. yeah. You you start on the city desk of the Boston Globe. Yeah, I went. Uh, I was a speechwriter for a little while. So I, for I UNICEF, uh, for UNICEF, for Audrey Hepburn, and and a guy named Larry Bruce was the president. I, I was there for three years. Is that how you you get these screenwriting gigs? You say you know I used to write for Audrey. Hepburn. <laughs> you know, I never even seen an Audrey Hepburn. I know who she was. I think she appreciated that. Breakfast actually. at Tiffany's. I, I badgered her for nothing. No, I was a kid. I had not watched anything. I, I just knew she was a super nice person, and she was doing a lot of good work. And that was that was actually a good experience. I thought briefly about staying in speechwriting. Because um, at that time, you know, he, he, I thought, wow, you get paid six times what I was getting paid. You know, I mean, it was, I was journalism jobs were sixteen, seventeen grand a year, and I had no yeah. money. Um, and and uh, I certainly could have. Once you have the experience of write, speech writing for someone you don't respect as much, which is what happened to me after both the people I was writing for actually died around the same time, Audrey and, and Larry Bruce. And when you have the experience of writing for people who are not as admirable, you quickly realize, at least I realized that was not for me. Uh, and so I went back to graduate school uh, in journalism at Columbia. Then I went to Boston Globe. Uh, I was on the city desk for two years. And what was then, that? What was that like? That experience? Well, that was fantastic. I mean, it really was. And I could have stayed at the Globe probably my whole career, or at least it seemed that way at the time, not knowing of the, all the economic changes that would come to the business. But um, I loved it. I was one of the youngest people in the newsroom. Uh, you know, I was very quickly doing breaking news. It was you know, crazy hours and a crazy pace, but I. You know, my job was to patrol all the worst neighborhoods, you know, all the toughest neighborhoods in Boston, or if somebody got killed in some freak way in a suburb. It was it was news. I and mean, the thing you learn, the the reason I'm so grateful for that experience now, looking back, uh, and I could have I could have been very happy doing a lot of things there, and, and probably would have covered politics there eventually. But the thing I'm I'm really could have been grateful. On the spotlight crew, you could have been. Yeah, I worked with. I mean, Walter Robinson was my metro yeah. editor. You know, Robbie. I, I knew Walter. When uh, he yeah, was you must have covering right? he covering some politics. Yeah. yeah, no, Robbie's a great guy. I knew all these guys, uh, and but you know, news when you cover it day to day is a it really humiliates you, as you know from your experience. It it you what you find out very quickly is that reality defies your easy armchair analysis and prediction of what's going on. And I can remember very clearly a murder where everybody knew who did it, the guy who did it. It was a, it was a horrific murder of, a, of an au pair who'd been literally sawed in half. It was just one of these mm. crazy stories. This guy, um, I, I mean, he only spoke to me. I had interviews with him, and uh, but I, we were all sure that he was the guy that he had been tried and convicted in the media. It turned out um, he wasn't the guy. 
Um, I, I remember a story covering a story of a murder of a kid in Maine that no one could explain. And it turned out, we found out much later on that he had actually killed himself. And his father was so ashamed that he'd moved the body and staged the murder. Hmm. Um, these are things story. when you do, yeah, it was, it was a horrible story and I'll always remember it. But when you do these things, um, when you do these kinds of stories, you learn that you actually don't know, um, what seems obvious isn't obvious and, and you don't know what goes on inside people's heads. And I think that served me well later covering politics. I've always, I've never assumed the motives of people. I've never assumed that what went on just because it looks like the line went from point A to point B. Yes. I never assumed that it was that. Clean. I worked with a, uh, with a great investigative reporter when I, I, you know, I spent my first eight years at the Chicago Tribune starting right. from when I graduated from college. That was the greatest education of my life. But I worked for a great investigative reporter, Chuck Neubauer, and Chuck and I did some pieces together, and um, you know I would be gung ho, we've got it, let's go, and he would say no, we've got A and we've got C, but if you don't have B, you don't have a story. And Chuck was very painstaking. He took a long time to do his work, but he won Pulitzer prizes, and his work was always impeccable to the point where people who he actually put in jail would say, yeah, I didn't like it, but <laughs> at least he was fair, you know. And uh, and he got, you know, he got me. So uh, I, I think that I worry a little bit today that there's, you know, the, the pressure to produce is so prodigious. And, you know, you worked, I want to jump ahead in the narrative, but you worked for uh, Yahoo. Yeah, and, that's where I am now. And yeah. where you are now. So you know that the pressures of digital, not just on the new media right. sources, but old no, that's right. sources like the Globe, like my paper, well, like it's not just the digital pressure. It's also um, it's the way people come up now. It's the pathway is different, right? You used to have to do a certain amount of reporting. You used to have to learn that lesson that right. I was describing before they would let you go out and write about the presidency. Right. Uh, I hate to sound like you know the get off my lawn old guy, but I do think no, you, these kids are missing something when you when you get if someone had given me a column at twenty two. Or blog, if it had existed. If someone had let me vent my opinions at 22 about politics, or 25, or 28, and without having covered it, I would have, I would have taken that. I, I once, I, I once, uh, you know, was in the running to be a Metro columnist at the Globe after I had left, and and I desperately wanted that job. I was too young. I wouldn't have known enough. Yeah. But I didn't know that. The thing is, they didn't give us those opportunities. They yeah. actually, they they said to me, you know what, just not yet. And right. And, and the fact that we do now have a world where people can come cannot cover things, not learn them, not see them, and then just start offering their opinions to large audiences. That's a problem. It is a problem. Yeah. When I got to the Tribune, you know, I had a lot. I had in college developed an expertise on Chicago politics, wrote about it for local newspapers. And the city editor said, yeah, we could put you on politics right away, but you don't really know uh, about reporting. Right. And uh, so uh, they put me on nights. He put me on nights for two I and a half years. I worked the night shift at the Globe. I yeah. did not. So what was that I was shift not crazy. What were the hours of that shift? Six to two. And we did four to two. But they always called you in early because invariably you were a kid and invariably somebody, you know, left a story at two o'clock. Right. Needed. So it was almost always, you know, two to two. I loved every minute of it. I loved every I minute of it. <laughs> no, I mean, I really, I, 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 I enjoyed the newsroom. <laughs> I enjoyed that camaraderie. But I also, yeah. you know, you see a side of life on nights that, you know, I just hadn't seen, and you learn a lot about yeah. uh, the way people live and the way people die, and um, and right. you know I covered plane crashes and murders, the L falling off the 
the tracks uh, oh, onto man. the street below, um, and um, you know all manner of thing that I wouldn't have experienced before. And then having to write about that and write about it accurately on deadline and so on. No, it was great. It's invaluable. A experience. great experience. And you're right. A lot of young people don't get uh, get that chance today. So I was. I'm really grateful. I was pissed when they put me on nights. I'm really grateful. I was too. Did. Yeah, I had the same feeling. I had to go through nights, and I did it for a while. I think we were short staffed. It's probably close to a year, and I was that was brutal. Uh, we're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with Matt Pye. So you spent two years at the Globe, and and then you went on to Newsweek. Why did you make that? Why did you make that uh, switch? Uh, well, the truth is, I, I I had interned for Newsweek, and you probably knew Ann McDaniel at one time. Yeah, Anne, sure. Anne, mm-hmm. So she was the bureau chief and chief of correspondence, a very powerful person at Newsweek. And Ann called me. She had offered me a couple of jobs after I went to the Globe. They wanted to keep me at Newsweek, and I did what was considered to a lot of people a crazy thing in going to the Globe. But I wanted that daily experience. I remember somebody at the Globe saying to me, "You could have stayed at Newsweek, and you came here." I mean, that was. Kind of nuts. I loved Matt Storen, who was then the editor of the Globe, and I thought it was going to mm-hmm. be a great experience. And once I saw those trucks and the skyline out the newsroom window, I was kind of hooked. So I went up there, and, and Ann had called me a couple times, and so she called me about two years in. Uh, in fact, they'd they'd offered, uh, they'd asked me if I wanted to cover the '96 campaign. But remember, they had that project at Newsweek where you were only reporting, but you didn't write. Right, part of the book project for a book at and the I, end of the campaign. I, I just I said to her, I have no interest in not not writing. That's I love that part. So two years in, she called me and she said, all right, look, uh, I will, you know, we, we're offering a job as a national correspondent. We want sort of people, we want to set a model of people who will go out and do the reporting and the writing because, you know, with the news magazines, they had always been separate. She said, I cannot offer you a better job than this. It's the best one I'm ever going to be able to offer. If you want to do national reporting, now is your moment. And uh, and it was not an easy decision um, because I hadn't been at the Globe that long. I had great friends and a, a girlfriend and I love the newsroom and all that but um, I did want to do that national thing and that was tremendous I was at Newsweek for five years at the tail end of the golden era and I saw it just every part of the country twice over I was on the road so much I was sick of being on the road but I had never been anywhere you know I Bridgeport was my world I you know Trumbull Bridgeport Fairfield County whatever New York but uh, you know I hadn't seen Boston till I went to college I'd never seen the west coast till I was in my 20s and I really was not well traveled and that was that was my five years to 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 really understand the country. And in an era when, as you as you remember, there was no GPS, so right. I had a stack of maps, you know, the, as tall as I am. And before I got on a plane, if I remembered, I grabbed them out. And and there were by the time I you know a couple of years into that job, there were a half a dozen cities in America I could land in with no map, and I knew where I was going because I had spent so much time traveling around. It was a tremendous experience. What did you learn uh, about American politics uh, in that? You covered the 2000 yeah. campaign. Well, that's when I started covering politics. But but interestingly and importantly, you know, for me, uh, you know, Howard Feynman had the national, the Washington beat kind of to, to himself. Uh, and we had a pretty good political team. And my thing was mayors and governors mm. and state issues. Uh, it was tough to get it in the magazine. Newsweek was always a frustrating writing experience for me. That's um, why, you know, five years was about as much as I, I think I could have done. But because the space was so tight, the format was so restrictive, and it was tough to get in the magazine. But um, I really learned about local politics. I mean, I had worked for a couple of mayors before, you know, when I was a kid. 
uh, just in summers or whatever. But but to you know to understand all these local and state issues, I still to this day give me an opportunity to spend time with any politician. I'll go to a governor yeah. or a mayor in a yeah. heartbeat, and I got to know a lot of politicians, you know, who were important. I spent a lot of nineteen ninety. Nine with Jesse Ventura in Minnesota, and not only did, was that a fascinating story and a great experience, and and forged a lot of my views about uh, you know the potential of breaking the two party paradigm in American politics and the the uh, what was going on with the electorate that you know still informed my views, but uh, it also uh, you know showed me what was going on with the electorate, what was going on, what what was coming in American politics. It really you know people used to say I was crazy. When you know at the, the early two thousands, I was saying you're going to get an independent presidency in this country. You're you know you're going to see the deterioration of the two parties. That's yeah. what really and we got kind me of th- have we have, and we're going to still. And that's what really got me thinking about the deterioration of institutions, which is a theme I think I got to much sooner than other people. In fact, it's frustrating to me now that it's so mainstream, because uh, you know later when I was at the Times, because uh, that 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 was really that experience really opened my eyes to what was really going on in American politics that people in Washington really were very slow to, yeah. to understand. Well, your friend Gary Hart, about whom you wrote, told me in 1987 something that was probably the most meaningful bit of advice, the most meaningful insight that I ever received, and that was, he said, Washington is always the last to get the news. That's right. And uh, I think that's true. And, you know, I, I had— I do, too. I, uh, I, when I was doing my political work, uh, I specialized in mayor's races— because I found urban politics the most vital politics, because mayors are closest to the people, and they're actually counted on to deliver services that make a life or death, and certainly a quality of life difference uh, for people. And, uh, you know, the issues and the debates in Washington are often so attenuated and and uh, uh, distant from people's experience, well, which I think is part of their frustration. Well, it's designed that way. And this is how I, I've written about this a couple of times. That it's you know the system is designed to be responsive. That's the nature of the republic. We, we don't actually want Washington forging ahead in a, creating our cultural trends. Everything, every other sector of the society, society gets hit by cultural upheaval first. It's 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 Hollywood, it's business, it's sports. It's it always filters to Washington last, because the system is designed to be very um, responsive to what's going on out there. And so I think I think it, Washington is always catching up to the cultural trends after everybody. One else. of my uh, one of my f- frustrations. I I, I, mean, I wouldn't trade my experience working in the White House for any. But in the two years I was there, um, you know, it is like working in a submarine, and you are sort of <laughs> looking at the country through a periscope. And, uh, you know, I always, li- I always lived in Chicago, lived in the Midwest, and I always felt I was better as a political strategist because I lived out in the real world. Right. And uh, Washington is not. Washington really is an echo chamber. Well, it, d- it depends how you live in Washington because I've always taken issue with consultants, you know, aides like yourself who came to town and proclaimed Washington a Potemkin village and wanted and talked about – they did this. The Bush people did this too much. They wanted to go home. I mean um, – you know, I've never spent uh, a little, little defensive about staying there, are you? Well, I've never spent you know my weeks at reporting dinners, media. I don't go to parties and book parties. I've got um, I've got my family. We live in the suburbs and or you know close in in Bethesda. I've got my kids. I go to the bus stop every morning. I talk to other parents about their kids, what we watched on TV. My existence, I think, uh, you know, is very normal. My friends are not in politics, a lot of them, or, or not in media, so. Um, you know, I think that's an especially the experience of people who come in with a president and leave with a president or with a senator and leave with a senator. But I think, you know, 
part of the problem is that that furthers the impression that people who live in Washington work in a variety of sectors or in government or in the federal government as, as in, in civil service jobs or in the media, you know, can't understand the lives of normal Americans. And I think for many of us who are there over a long period of time and forge real ties, our lives are actually quite normal. Yeah. No, I, I, I appreciate that. I can tell you, though, that um, to me it was advantageous to hear the conversation outside of Washington uh, and all over the country uh, and and being basically being anchored there uh, and not being able to get around as much as I'd like. I used to have meetings with um, consultants uh, and friends of mine from politics from outside of Washington on a regular basis just to hear uh, what they were Well, that hearing. really is like prison, though, right? Working in the administration in the hours you were working. Yeah, that, basically, that really you know, you spend all your— all your time there. But it was interesting. You know, I remember one conversation with this group I assembled when we were working on the economic stuff. And, you know, we were so desperate to show progress because the country had been in such bad shape when we took over. And so every um, every time we got like a positive job report and so on, the instinct was to to tout that. And, and you know, what I heard back was, look, people aren't feeling it. They're not feeling this progress. Right. Uh, in their own lives. And we still feel that today. I mean, uh, objectively, our economy is exponentially stronger than it was when Barack Obama arrived. 75 straight months of job growth, 3.5% growth, as opposed to 8.9% decline in the GDP, right. worse since 1930. So by a lot, but the growth has been uneven. It's uneven. Yeah. People don't feel it in their lives. And, uh, so it's important to have people remind you of those things when you're sitting in there and you have other imperatives kind of driven by a narrower you know vantage point from that building. So it was it, it was uh, but anyway, I want to return to your I, I thought President Obama's election was an excellent example of, of by the way of how, you know, Washington is the last to get the news. I remember writing in 2008, I had an ongoing argument when I was at the Times Magazine with some of the writers who were writing about it, about whether an African-American candidate could get elected president. And I remember saying, hey, guys, I, I wrote this. I said, you know, there's this show called 24. It's had not one but two black presidents now in a row. Its ratings are among the highest in the country. Nobody sits around saying that's not believable, that's not plausible. Only in Washington where people and in the media where people still say America's too racist to elect a black president. Yeah. But the cultural markers were all there. That, yeah. that you know, in fact, that was not an insurmountable hurdle, and I always believed that was the case. I think um, even when uh, Obama was well on his way to becoming the nominee of the Democratic Party when he ran into um, the controversy over his pastor, Reverend Wright, there was a kind of sense in the national media that uh, this is it. This We're finally going to prove the point. America's not ready. That's right. There's going to be a reaction to it. You may remember everybody descended on Philadelphia when Obama made his great speech on this. Uh, and they weren't coming there uh, expecting him necessarily to navigate his way through this. Uh, they thought this might be a campaign-ending uh, controversy because of that. Uh, assumption I think the country was well ahead of the people who were writing about it at way that, ahead. At yeah, that way time. Ahead. So um, let's talk about sort of the evolution of politics. Uh, you, you, uh, we mentioned you wrote a, a book called All the Truth is Out. Uh, 
and uh, it but was. You just, but you just skipped eleven years of my career. I'm going to come back to. <laughs> All right, I jump around a lot, uh, but uh, because I because the the book you wrote, uh, yeah. the argument is is really goes to the fundamental point of what technology. Oh, the argument. Yeah, I forgot about that one. Yes. Yeah, you forgot about a book you wrote. I kind that, of that's about when that you one. know that you've made it as an author. Now, that there are two. books that you don't uh, that you don't remember, but yeah. um, but a lot of things you talked about then are, I think, very much in the forefront uh, now. But I'm interested in sort of this that you you started talking about it earlier, the evolution of media and politics. Gary Hart, for those who don't remember, uh, ran and I covered this campaign in 1984. Uh, ran a um, uh, an insurgent campaign for president in 1984 almost upset the uh, presumptive nominee of the party, Walter Mondale, and came back as the putative frontrunner uh, before 2008. And his campaign and his career. 1988, was running in 1987 as the presumptive nominee. And uh, and what happened to Gary Hart? Well, Hart uh, was embroiled in really the first modern satellite-driven sex scandal. Uh, and uh, you know, they were, he was literally put under surveillance. I think it would be shocking today. It was very shocking then. He was put under surveillance at his home by a team from the Miami Herald. They saw a woman coming in and out. They wrote about it. It exploded. It was a five-day televised national soap opera that ended not only in his withdrawal from the presidential race, which shocked a lot of people, but really his uh, disgrace in public life, uh, something from which he never really came back, despite Which being, was kind of a tragedy, because yeah. Gary Hart, as you write and have written, as I know, he was a fellow here at the Institute of Politics, maybe one of the, the most incisive thinkers we've had in American politics in my lifetime. I agree. Uh, and... Uh, his uh, his his talents uh, were wasted uh, after that episode that forced him essentially forced him out of American politics. Interestingly, four years before Bill Clinton uh, had his issues and was able to overcome them, and now we're in 2016, where you have that Access Hollywood tape uh, released. Right. And it wasn't a career ending. But, but, you know, I argue, uh, and have argued David that it's not, um, it's a mistake to look at it through the prism only of scandals and sex. Although, you know, I do think, um, you know, there is a line from Hart to Clinton and where we are with Trump and, and it's more complicated than people think it is. But what really happened in 1987, more so than just being about sex or about personal lives, is that that is a shift to me from uh, a media and a political process focused on ideas and worldviews and agendas to to institutions focused on personalities and entertainment. Um, what it, what that really was was the beginning of, of politics as soap opera and politicians as celebrities in a way that only celebrities had been treated before that. And so when you can, when you look at it that way, and this is what I argue in the book, there is a really direct line. In fact, I did not anticipate the book being quite as prescient as I think some people think it was. But when you draw that, I think you can draw a line from 1987 to Donald Trump in in 2016, and and there's a very clear evolution there because he represents really the apotheosis of the celebrity, celebrity culture, entertainment as politics, and, where we can no longer disentangle the two. And uh, 
understands it at that level understands exactly. exploits uh, how to how to exploit uh, celebrity understands the media fascination with celebrity uh, you can see it even now in the early days of his presidency the way he is signing these executive orders and turning those into a television event and displaying the right. the uh, as, as if it's some sort of extended episode of the apprentice. Uh, well, his transition apprentice. was a reality show, right? He'd march everybody in front of the camera. Is it going to be this guy? Is it going to be that guy? It was literally like The Apprentice, you know, eerily. Yeah, uh, he cameos. Is, by he's not Don possible. You know, Trump is not possible in a world where we don't and we, principally the media, but also the political parties and also the public where we don't uh, view our politics through the prism of entertainment. And Hart warned very clearly about this. When he got out of the race in 1987, he gave what I think is one of the most prescient speeches in the history of American politics. I consider it up there with the, the with Eisenhower's military-industrial complex speech. No one remembers it. In fact, it was entirely mocked and dismissed at the time. But he said, take it from me, politics in this country is on the verge of becoming a kind of athletic competition or sporting match. And he said, I tremble for my country. He said, he said we'll all be... He said, I tremble for my country to think we'll all be rephrasing Jefferson to say, uh, you know, uh, uh, or rather, I'll go back saying, he says, he says uh, I fear we'll all be uh, rephrasing Jefferson to say, I tremble for my country when I think we may, in fact, get the leaders we deserve. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I think, you know, I think that at this moment is, uh, you know, absurdly prescient. What, um, what about covering politics? Uh, we, 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 uh, we touched on it a little bit, but... How has how has that changed? You know, what are the demands <laughs> of the of this culture on media? And how did Donald Trump? We said he exploited. How did he exploit it? How did there? How, what kind of uh, synergies were there between the needs of the media in this oh. environment and Donald Trump's needs as a as an outsider, sort of celebrity driven candidate? Well, you know, I I wrote about this. Uh, you know, way back uh, during the primaries, but, you know, and I still feel very strongly about it. For most of the primary season in late uh, 2015, through the summer, from the the summer into the fall of 2015, Donald Trump was polling 20 to 25%, never really higher than 30. It was a very fractured Republican field, and so he was actually leading the polls, but he was leading with a very modest percentage, and largely because he was a celebrity, and he probably came into the race just based on TV stardom alone with 20%. But if you were watching cable news or Sunday shows in this country, you would have sworn he had 50-plus percent of the vote and, and was, was steamrolling his way toward the nomination. He was on all the time to the extent where I think it made it hard for other candidates to even be heard, to even introduce themselves. And partly, you know, I think this was the fault of a, of a process. The Republican Party should have got control of this. You don't have uh, – I think the super PACs contributed to this mightily because they enabled everybody to stick around, to get in and stick around if they had one friend who could write a check. But, you know, when you have seven governors in a race, which we've not seen before, seven current or former governors, and the public doesn't know who any of them are, uh, it's very hard to break out. And there you had Trump just dominating. And in part of it, give him credit, he showed up because he loves the media. He loves the attention. I but, mean, he but was ubiquitous by, uh, you know, by design. I mean, he But also himself, by the design of the up. networks because they, There's no doubt about it. Know. There was a... There, there was a uh, he was uh, ratings. He was entertainment. And he knew that. And he said that. And he is, because of that... He has been consistently, and I would argue to this day still is, not judged as a politician. He is judged as an entertainer. 
you know, he's judged by an entirely different standard. And people used to say, and they still, you know, how can he say one thing and then say another 48 hours later? You know, how can he say he was against the war in Iraq when we're showing this clip that he's for the war in Iraq and nobody cares? Well, politicians can't get away with that. Hillary Clinton can't get away with that. Barack Obama can't get away with that. And, and, and Jeb Bush can't get away with that, right? A, a career politician, we always suspect of, and we call that a flip-flop. We always suspect that they're changing with the winds of public opinion. But entertainers do it all the time. Entertainers take on roles. They change characters. They change personas. They have fallen redemption stories. They fall out of favor. They come back. And entertainers are constantly reinventing themselves. And mm-hmm. Trump is a, in a constant state of reinvention. Uh, I first met him in 1999 when he was considering the reform nomination for president. Jesse Ventura was trying to build a national party, and I spent some time with Trump. And then he was like a good government, non-party, you know, reform candidate and decided not to run. And I frankly thought he would never run. But he is uh, he is temperamentally and by career an entertainer, and it gives him – I think he's judged by the public in an entirely different way. But he understands his character. I mean the fact is that he may change positions – but his fundamental persona is something that he's developed from the time he was in his 20s yeah, in New right. York, uh, this, this notion of a sort of outspokenness and, you know, uh, brass and all right. of that. Right. Uh, and, and that is something that doesn't change. He understands his character. He does. And he's a provocateur and he knows how to – he knows that, you know, attention is – you know, there are people who say there's no such thing as bad PR. There's no such thing as bad attention. I, he subscribes to that, and and he learned this, you know, in the hardest media culture in the world, in New York. And you know, you know, he didn't become the most famous land developer in New York and then the country because he built more beautiful buildings than everybody else. Because he knew how to create this persona. He knows how to get everybody jumping up and down. How can Donald Trump say that? He knows that it doesn't matter. What matters is that he's getting the attention. Whatever he says just kind of slides off, goes away. Uh, you know, so he's he he he's pretty brilliant. And even now, we see him today. You know, just today. You know, he'll declare war. I'll talk about what a terrible, how the media is the worst people on earth and how he hates the New York Times. But, you know, there's Maggie Haberman in the Times today with a whole conversation with him about what it's like living in the White House. He, he's always playing this game of cultivating individual reporters while simultaneously declaring war on the institutions they work for. And it's, it's just worked really well for him. This notion of, uh, of being a, a, a masterful self-promoter and brander and kind of... Uh, ringmaster um he always draws draws me back to a profile i read of him in the washington post in which they said that his childhood hero was flo ziegfeld of the ziegfeld follies uh you know great broadway impresario who right. uh, who always uh, was uh, understood the show and how to sell the show and uh, he certainly has that quality we're going to take another short break and we'll be back with matt by so you raise uh, the complicity of the media in Trump's rise, and it, it underscores a couple of, of challenges. One is uh, the role of the media as a trust versus the role of the media as a business. Uh, and it seems like those two came into, those two roles came into collision uh, during the course of this campaign as media outlets tried to determine how to deal with Donald Trump because as you point out yeah. and as he always points out he's good ratings even if people don't like him it's like watching a a, a slow motion car crash you know you can't avert your eyes right. so uh how if you're a news executive and you're trying to keep your 
uh, organization afloat and profitable and competitive. Um, how do you how do you deal with that? Well, it's always a balance, and it always has been a balance. Trump didn't Trump didn't invent that. I mean, we've been dealing with this for a long time in our industry. Uh, Although the industry is more competitive today, probably than than ever, given you know the role that the internet now and, plays. and harder to monetize. I mean, it's very very hard to make money at. Um, so you know, there's no. There's, I'm not a big. I don't generally believe in hard and fast rules for things. I think they tend to get you into trouble. And there's no hard and fast rule for how to handle a candidate like that. But I think you have to use. You know, generally my feeling about journalism as a business has always been that um, you have the right and the responsibility to make money uh, and to be conscious of your market, but you also have the responsibility not to make all the money you possibly can at the expense of everything else. That there, There is a balance. This is not a business you get into to maximize profit. It should not be a business you get into to lose money. We, we, we can't be naive about it. But um, But, you know, the best media ownership we've had in this country, I think, are the families who uh, wanted to make money, but understood that they could be making more money doing something else and that they had a public trust. And when they started to sell and become public corporations, I think we got into trouble. So, um, so, you know, look, if you're running a a network and Donald Trump is great for your ratings, uh, I can see why you want to have him on and I can see why you pay attention to your ratings and I don't, you can't ignore what your audience wants, but the audience doesn't drive news coverage. News coverage is, based on a whole series of factors. And most often it's about what's important and you have a responsibility, particularly uh, in the process of choosing a president, um, to inform people and make sure they have all the information and all the knowledge they need. And I don't think that balance was anywhere near the 2015 uh, into into the 2016 primary season. I don't think there was any balance on television, certainly. Do you think that part of it was that for the, for uh, a while there there was an assumption that Trump oh, was an interesting sideshow, but he really wasn't going to be the nominee or the president. If you could strap the media executives you know, to a to polygraph, I think that's what you would find out. That you know they understood that it was out of all proportion, but nobody thought he could win. Uh, and so what was, they weren't really undermining democracy. They were just making money while it was out there to be made. Uh, and I don't even know if they're making money. They're just building ratings. Sometimes I wonder if the whole ratings game is. Uh, and the circulation, all of it is really about what you monetize or if it's just about pride and competition and industry lore, right, that we beat you. And we're always – we're obsessed in my business with, with being first. There's always been a thing I never understood. You know, we got it first and they and they should credit us because we had it 10 minutes. I never I, – I lack that gene. I was born without it. I do not understand why it matters who got there 10 minutes early. And in the same way, I think this obsession with ratings is often just driven by sheer industry competition. Well, in the day when there were actual news cycles, if you could, like when I was a kid reporter, if you could beat the other paper on a big story uh, by an addition and you were on the streets in those boxes with this Yeah, you news, were literally selling papers. Yeah, that, then it was more important. But now you're talking about a matter of seconds in right. many cases. And nobody even knows. The public doesn't even know. I, and I do understand that like for Sunday shows and – Cable shows, they're, they're selling ads against those ratings, and those ratings matter. But um, I, I think we lost. We got lost, and, and you're right. Part of the reason we got lost as an industry is because we didn't think it mattered, and it did. Yeah. Well, there, there, there are 16 Republican candidates who are deeply aggrieved uh, about that. Well, and three or four of them who've got a case. Yeah. Know. Well— but- I do think, not only, while we're on the subject, because I think, I think this matters, is— it wasn't just the decision of who to put on television. If you recall, this is the first time I ever saw, and I'm, I'm sure you'd say the same, 
because the field was so large for the debates, not only did they cut a bunch of people out of the debates and put them at the kiddie table, but they arranged the candidates on the stage by their polling numbers. So Trump was standing in the middle of every debate stage and getting the first question and the line share of the questions. And John Kasich, in his second term as highly popular governor of one of the largest states in the country, is on the edge of the stage trying to elbow his way into the conversation. That sends a signal to viewers. That had an impact. Right. Well, it also is true that the party itself, in having to narrow, the, because 17 on a stage seemed too much, uh, made use of the polls, yeah. and the polls became self-perpetuating exactly. in that way. So exactly. you got a guy like Lindsey Graham, who consistently, in the sort of junior varsity debates, right. uh, just dominated those debates. That's and right. would have been a really interesting uh, addition to the larger debate, but because his numbers weren't sufficient, he couldn't get into the larger debate. And I think a lot of there has to be a lot of soul-searching about that uh, moving forward, because you're basically, you know, when you when you operate that way, you you are you are not allowing for a candidate to emerge exactly uh, in the way that candidates have emerged uh, in the past. I mean, Bill Clinton wouldn't have been uh, if, right. on the debate stage if you had made decisions that way. Now, no, you know, no party's ever had a 17 uh, uh, candidate field, but so. Trump is the now he is the story. Now it's mm-hmm. not a matter That's of right. uh, him making himself. And that the was story. true as soon as he got the nomination. I think you know you had to now, now you now now you had to cover him as as the real deal. So how do you cover him? We're in this odd world now of facts and alternative facts, um, and a president who is insistent on his. Uh, account of events, even when there is objective evidence, yeah. uh, otherwise, such as the crowds at the inauguration, and probably more serious and 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 dis- distressing, the uh, assertion that he couldn't have lost the popular vote and three million or f- three to five million yeah. people have voted illegally without a shred of evidence uh, to support that fun- a fundamental kind of assault on the, the, the bedrock institution of democracy right. elections. With no grounds. So, but clearly this is going to continue. What, how does the news media deal with this? There's this constant sort of struggle uh, between him saying they're biased and they're right. pr- producing a biased point of view. Because that's also another institution that is not doing well in the public's view, and stands to be eroded further. Well, and that's why he gets away with it. What Trump is effectively saying, and what Sean Spicer, his press secretary, in his first week is effectively saying to the country is, or to the what he's effective, what they're effectively saying to the American media is, go ahead, it's our word against yours, go to town. And they know that the facts aren't with them, but they also know that we enjoy no trust, and that they are. This is you know the first time we've basically had a political operation at this level say to us. Go ahead, jump up and down. Nobody, nobody cares what you think. That's ex- and and in fact, this isn't just privately what is said. This is said. I mean, I've been on the set of CNN with uh, s- uh, supporters of Donald yeah. Trump, and who I said saw just you, that? I, I saw you out of the corner of my eye uh, the other night, nearly take Jeffrey Lord's head off. I don't know what was being said, but the body language. Well, this was, was pretty, part of the discussion. Yeah, uh, you know, look. I mean, it's a very cynical view. It is. I think you know, just judging from the first week, it was a very eventful, tumultuous week for both him and the media. Um, 
you know, I think we're doing as an industry a really good job. I, I when I say we, and I always looked at the New York Times where I was for so long because that to me is a benchmark. That was among the eleven uh, years that I cut out. That was my whole eleven years. Yeah, yes. uh, you know, I, we, uh, you know, distinguished I at, years. Let's just uh, uh, stipulate. You that. know, so the, the Times, the Post, uh, they were formative years. Um, you know, I look at what the TVs are doing. I mean, you know, the the idea that. You know, this word liar is in so many headlines, you know, it says or says baseless claims, you know, and I, um, you know, my wife works uh, online. She's an she's a, an executive editor with CBS News dot com. And, and I see her wrestle with this all the time, you know, at home at night, you know, going through the post is how do you headline this? How do you how do you cast a story when we know it's not true? And I think we're doing a really good job of being, you know, challenging him and being transparent and, and not, you know, allowing sort of uh this stasis to set in where he goes on challenge. I, I, I think we have a little, I think we have a danger in that too, which is, you know, um, can we cover him fairly? You know, once we've decided he, he lies because he has lied, once we, we've, we've accommodated ourselves to saying a president lies to our readers, um, are we capable of being fair? We, I think we have to be really conscious of the fact that if he were different tomorrow, if he didn't lie again, if he if if he achieves things, if he succeeds, right. if he makes a case that makes sense, you know that's we can't allow as you start out talking about. We can't be cynical about this, right? We still have to cover him as a president, and I think we have to cover the White House, you know, as 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 objectively as we can while holding them to account. And I think um, I would hope that in the process of this, we as an industry take stock of our role in creating this moment because it's easy to demonize him, right? It's easy to talk about, or, or, you know, demonize is too strong a word. It's easy to call him out for dishonesty and, and exploiting the moment and entertaining, demagoguing people. He does those things. But uh, I'm not sure we've yet come to grips with how that was possible and the decisions we've made over the last 20 or 30 years that led us here because if that lesson is lost on us and I don't know where we get the time or the breath to do that but if that lesson is lost on us and I think you know we are not going to uh, we're not going to be able to contribute in a more constructive way and it's important to note that the controversies that he helped generate over the crowd size over the election re-litigating the election and so on um, in, in part obscured the fact that in his first week, whatever you think of his policy, uh, he he took a very aggressive start here on the uh, deconstructing the ACA, on trade, uh, on deregulation. On trade. I mean, I, I don't. A lot of it's been, you know, intentions. Right. My intention is to reform or scrap the ACA. My my intention is to. Um, build a wall. You know, the executive orders that are a little bit more show than reality. Yes. But on trade in particular, I think where he's dove, dove right into, I want to renegotiate NAFTA, um, you know, and, and they're serious about the tariffs or transfer taxes, however they want to do it. That is um, radical. Yes. Radical rethinking of American policy since I've been alive. Uh, and uh, and he's diving right in. He's not shy. I think, I think that is the piece he really believes quite yeah. strongly. And that's something that he's said consistently throughout mm-hmm. Uh, the years um, and the left ba- a lot of the left backs him on yes I mean there was a lot of praise for for his scrapping TPP which I mean that was a very big deal one of the uh, I mean one of the interesting things about Trump is he really isn't a partisan and he's not really an ideologue uh, he has this hodgepodge of stuff but it adds up to this kind of populist uh, uh, agenda that 
Some of which, I mean, this week he's torn after the pharmaceutical industry. You get a lot of support among Democrats on that, on pricing of pharmaceutical uh, um, drugs. You mentioned mentioned trade. And there, there are some other issues on which Republicans will be uncomfortable and Democrats um, might support. That's right. I mean, that's well, TPP is a great example. I mean, Republic- yes. there was a lot of Republican support for that, even if they didn't want to necessarily give President Obama including the speaker, including the, uh, including the highest highest ranking. You know, I wrote a column last week called um, "President Trump and the End of the American Century" and the day before the inauguration. And my point uh, was not that you know, oh my God, we're now going off a cliff. It's over. My point was. Um, in every way, in this philosophy you're describing, he repudiates what has been the guiding vision of American government since Franklin Roosevelt. Right, the 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 twenty the American century, the twentieth century, really begins with the end of World War II, and it's really it is based around the idea that we are primary in the world, that we are it is our responsibility to defend much of the world, that we will be a we will be the main actor on the global stage, the main driver of trade. We, it was an expansive philosophy, expanding markets, expanding military right. might, and expanding values and culture, exporting consumerism, exporting uh, movies and TV and all of it. Um, and and Trump's philosophy really is the it really his election. We've been getting there slowly, uh, but his election really is the repudiation of of that. It is the end of the American century. It is no no. We've done enough. We're now we're not expanding anymore. We're coming home. NATO, you're going to have to do this for yourself. You know we we are we are not going to be this this phrase you've heard in politics now for thirty years. We're not going to be the world's policeman. He means it. We're yeah. not going to be all over the world. We're we're treating from markets. We're not expanding. We're literally going to have a big beautiful wall that locks us in. You know, right or wrong, his philosophy is, uh, you know, as he said, America first, and and we we will be powerful, but we will not be the the prime power in all things in the world. And that is a real retreat from everything we grew up with. And it's not only. Uh it's not only a watershed for America, but also for the world that has come to rely on American leadership. It's astounding. I mean, I was in Australia last summer, and, and uh, people there, the politicians and the business leaders were saying, getting very angry at me. You know, they were saying, don't you people know what you're doing? This is before he was elected. You know, you're messing around. What you're messing around with isn't just your government. We're scared to death. You know, everybody's reliant on American leadership economically, militarily, and in you know in in Europe in Australia and you know among uh, in the Western Hemisphere and um, and so you know it uh, I, I think the world is shaken and I think you know, one of the points I made in this column I think is true is that you can we could come to a sobering we could say you know four years from now well that was a mistake we still want to be the leader of the world right we still want the American century but the world will move on the world yeah. has had its faith shaken well, and it's you could looking see that, elsewhere you could see. Uh, 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 the Chinese, the Germans have uh, made another stepping in. The Russians, yeah, the Chinese. I mean, yeah. there are enough actors, and TPP is certainly a part of that. I and mean, China the, will have a tremendous amount of influence. The in those real markets. issue is um, in the world in which we live, which has been shrunken by technology. Can you actually withdraw and say, as this, as President Trump has said, that we're going to keep the ravages of other countries yeah. uh, from our shores? It's very hard. I don't think so. To do that, and uh, the fact is. America took on this leadership role not just to export values, but as a matter of self-interest because it was clear after the World War that what ha- happens elsewhere uh, impacts on us and that we can't, uh, we can't build walls around ourselves and expect not to be impacted. That's so right. uh, that is going to be put to the test now. You're quite right. Matt Bai, the author of The Political World column at Yahoo, uh, really one of the most perceptive observers of our 
politics and our culture. Uh, great, great to be with you, and thank you for being here. This is fun. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit cnn.com slash podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.